Please turn with me to Acts chapter 13, as we'll be looking at verses 44 through 52. This is the last portion of the uh, chapter there. We're basically going to be looking at the, the response to the sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue and how the, in the later days after that there was this very polarized response. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to see our sinful selves when it comes to what your word has to say, rather than putting ourselves in the seat of the, the one who's understanding and always doing right and always loving and always following the word we are many times the opposite and so lord we pray that you would teach us that you would open our hearts and minds to learn more from you to learn more about ourselves how we might better serve you it's in your name we pray amen so as i've read through this text there's there's a lot here in our in our te- in our text today, but it made me think of a story, and it's similar to ones you guys have told me in the past. But one from my own um, stories, where a pastor friend of mine was concerned about his congregation, and there he he had recently began there at that church, and he was concerned about some of their just general knowledge of some of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith particularly doctrines of salvation and the gospel. They just didn't understand the basics. And so he wanted to go through a a series with them just outlining the basics so they could all get on the same page. And again, not that the church was necessarily full of non-Christians. Many of the congregation just could not clearly articulate an answer to the question, what is the gospel? So he began a series on basic doctrines. And after a few weeks, one of the wealthy individuals in the church came up to him and said when you stop preaching doctrine I'll start putting money in the plate again after some digging uh, the person explained that he didn't need doctrine he just wanted a very simple faith whatever that means needless to say my friend did not last there much longer Um, I've heard similar stories from you all uh, from your time in churches, the story of a pastor receiving a note after a sermon on Ephesians 2 saying, the note said, been there, done that, teach me something I don't know. Can't imagine receiving that one. When I was in youth ministry, a concerned parent came to me and said, I wish you'd teach our children more of the meat and potatoes. That was their quote of the Bible instead of a message about salvation each week. I asked promptly, where can the meat and potatoes in the Bible be found? That was met with a frown. I think that these are examples that are very easy for us to scoff at, I think, and dismiss. I mean, we aren't like that, are we? When our passage today, we see a sharp, divided response from the Jews and the Gentiles that heard Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel to them. The Jews began actively teaching, not all of them, 
but some of them there, began actively teaching against the gospel message, whereas the Gentiles are begging for more. Why? Because the Jews forgot the promises of the gospel, and they forgot it wasn't about them, but it was about the glory of Jesus Christ alone. And so before we rush to judgment on the Jews, we, of course, have to see ourselves in the text. I think especially as the church worldwide is seeking more and more to keep people interested in the gospel, it is very easy for us to preach about things that they're interested in rather than preaching the truth of Scripture. And so as we consider this text, I want to bring out two main points. First, the rejection of the gospel. And secondly, the appointment to eternal life. And so with that, I will read the text, Acts 13, starting at verse 44. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Acts 13, starting at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So quickly to review from last week, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled to this city called Antioch of Pisidia. And there he is, he and Barnabas, they're in the synagogue. They're preaching the plain gospel from the Old Testament text, uh, and he does that in order to establish Jesus as the prophesied Messiah for the people of God. It was a message to a Jewish audience in a Jewish worship service in a Jewish synagogue, but it was a message about Jesus, the one whom the Jews rejected and killed. But even, but even that was prophesied, even his death and his, and his resurrection. Now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his people. This is what Paul's message was. Remember, they followed him out. They begged him to come next week and teach the same message, which is what we can assume that he did. He did that very thing. But as you can imagine, there were some who did not take kindly to that message, just like when Jesus was talking about himself when he was there. They did not like it. It was one of forgiveness, a message of forgiveness, but it was also one of judgment. To the one who doesn't believe. 
What did Paul say? He quoted from Habakkuk. God is going to do something you wouldn't believe even if you were told. He is going to bring judgment even on those who call themselves His people. Remember faithfully, remember they faithfully went to the synagogue every time they went to a new place. Paul, Barnabas, all throughout the New Testament, or through the book of Acts, that's what you're going to see. There's no New Testament mandate for this, for them to do that. We don't see that, that commanded to them. But he loved his fellow people, Paul did. You can read through Romans 9 through 11 to get that idea for sure, among other places. We'll, re- we'll be in Romans 9 a little bit later. But you get the idea that he loved his fellow Jewish people. He loved them. That's why he continued to preach the gospel to them, even after they decidedly wouldn't hear it. That brings us to the first point, the rejection of the gospel. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Remember, we talked about Antioch, Pisidia. It was probably a city of maybe 100,000 people. So we don't really think that 100,000 people were there at the synagogue. We get the hyperbole here. I'm sure some liberal scholar would love to say, "Uh uh-uh, the whole city wouldn't fit in the synagogue. That's obviously not what we're getting at here. Um, The writer is trying to get us to see that this was a very big gathering, probably larger than normal. Here comes Paul and Barnabas in the city. They have this message about Jesus, the one that was crucified. And now people want to hear. Why would Luke also want to make sure that we understand that there was a large gathering? Think about Jesus. After his ministry began, what did he, what did he gather to himself? These large crowds would follow him around because he had a message of salvation. He had a message people weren't talking about. And so what does this highlight? That almost the whole city was there. It highlights for us verse 45. When the Jews saw this, they were filled with jealousy. Why? Why were they filled with jealousy? Again, get the picture here. Two gospel preachers, very obviously probably very gifted speakers, multitudes coming to listen to them, Scattered throughout the crowds, you have these people, as this builds, that are speaking against the picture, or the, speaking against the speaker, maybe even out loud. Maybe even they're like catcalling these Jewish people who begin kind of reviling him out loud, speaking against him, contradicting him. We, we do know that it got the attention of Paul and Barnabas. They noticed what was happening. And it's the text tells us that they spoke boldly spoke out against it. We're going to look specifically at what they said in a minute, but I want to focus more on these upset Jews. Not only do they speak against Paul and Barnabas, but that after Paul and Barnabas respond, they stir up. It says the text says devout women who went who went then and stirred up the male leadership of the city. And so they knew the right buttons to push to get the whole city kind of stirred up against Paul and Barnabas. The trouble was such that Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the city. Just as things were beginning to get good, they get driven out of the city. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, Paul and Barnabas' problems are just starting. They're going to have very similar responses wherever they go. What is it that stirred up the Jews? Jealousy. So why? 
people. Consider the Old Testament. What goes on in the Old Testament? All throughout history, Israel has been called what? God's chosen people. They were handpicked by God from among the idol worshipers. Abraham, handpicked, go to the place that I will show you. He had set a place for them called the Promised Land, and there they were. They were delivered from their enemies. They had a time of great prosperity. Of course, they forgot the part where they were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. God had appointed them, Israel, as his servant to do that blessing, and they failed. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. Where we're going to we're going to see this idea of Israel being being God's chosen. If you're Israel, you love this section of scripture, Isaiah 44 starting at verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and I will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and the name himself by the name of Israel. This is, if you're from Israel, this is the kind of thing you like. These people are proud. We are God's chosen people. I am the Lord's. I call upon the name of Jacob, a very rich heritage. But with that heritage brought much responsibility. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. If you are called the Lord's chosen people, and you're also told that you're going to be a blessing to the whole earth, there's a lot of responsibility there. Did Israel do that? They didn't. Look with me at Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 7. This kind of shows us that responsibility. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb of, to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Remember, Israel's in exile at this time. They want to gather Jacob back. They want to gather Israel back. But this is what the Lord says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the pre-preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It is too light a thing that only Israel would be preserved. I will make you a light to all the nations. I want you to go to all the world that they may see the light. Who is going to do this? Who is the servant that the Lord rose up to do this? It was Israel who failed. Israel. Well, 
except one Israelite was faithful to that, our Lord Jesus. And through him, the world would be blessed. And that's why they're jealous. The one true Israelite, Jesus Christ, came and did what they couldn't do. And now he had a following of people who were tax collectors and fishermen, ordinary people who were following him. And the whole city was coming and begging to hear more about this message of salvation. And they hated it. Remember the Pharisees. When Jesus was alive and doing ministry, they had the same feelings for Jesus. Remember after Lazarus was risen from the dead and he was, and Jesus came into the city on the colt of a donkey and the crowds loved him and they shouted Hosanna to him. And what did the Pharisees say? Even despite their best efforts to foil Jesus and to thwart him, they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. They were jealous. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. This is where we get to see ourselves in this. Lest we think that we are not like them. Luke chapter 18. You've heard me allude to this before. We've read it before, but we need to see this again. Luke 18, starting at verse 9. This idea of them being jealous, I want you to see it here. Luke 18, starting at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As we read through Acts 13, don't think for a moment that we're in the tax collector seat here in Luke 18. Or we're in Jesus' seat instructing others how we should treat each other. We're in the seat of the Pharisee. Because as soon as we find something that we think we can do well, we start to make an idol. I mean, look at the people the Pharisee uh, pointed out. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Think of an extortioner. Well, we could easily say, well, look at me. I don't steal money. Or unjust. Well, look at me. I care about the oppressed peoples of the world. Adulterers. Look at me. I care. I've got a really good marriage. You get the idea. We point fingers very quickly. Why? Because we think we've somehow earned something by not being these things. When in fact, the only thing that we have actually earned in our life is eternal punishment. But God, being rich in mercy, 
sent his son who took that punishment and gave us his blessings. So who is the gospel for? The extortioner, the unjust, the adulterer, the tax collectors and sinners, you and I. If we ever forget that, we'll get easily upset when others preach the true gospel. And the work of the Lord is going on around us, but we'll be too blind to see it. If we ever think that God's election of us to salvation somehow happened because we weren't any of those things or we weren't going to be any of those things that Jesus died to save, then we, then we have it backwards. He died to save us because we were and still are those things. We need his salvation today as much as we did when we first called upon his name. That's why we preach salvation sermons every single week. Because the saving isn't done. We have been saved, but we are being saved. We are a new creation, but we are being made new. We are holy, but we are being made holy. And this is happening even in spite of ourselves. And that brings me to the second point, the appointment to eternal life. And so you have this Jewish jealousy that's building, the catcalling that's going on. Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel, and you have this open contradiction happening in the crowd. Look with me at verses 46 and 47 for Paul's response. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, speaking to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And there Paul quotes from the text that we read in Isaiah 49. When the Gentiles heard this, what did they do? Of course they rejoiced. The prize that had only been for the Jews, in actuality, had been for them all along as well. Had been for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Anyone who could hear the message could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord, or the, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those people who had been appointed to believe beforehand did just that. And the message spread throughout the entire region. Verse 48 bothers people, a lot of people. Get this question. So you mean to tell me that only those people whom God appointed beforehand are the ones that believed? Yes, that's exactly what it says. This isn't just echoing, or this is just echoing what is taught throughout all of Scripture. Romans 9, you can begin turning there if you want to. It echoes this very idea. Romans 9 we just covered that in our uh, men's Bible study, or have, have, we may still be in it. Romans 9. 
in this chapter, Paul has just got through talking about the salvation that we have, this assurance that we have. Todd read from the end of chapter 8 in his prayer. And so we get this idea that salvation is something that we can, we can trust in the Lord. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And then Paul talks about the Jews here, that he loves the Jews, that he cares about the Jews. He talks about the Jewish story, that God raised up Abram, and from him came two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But Isaac was the child of promise, even though he was the second born. Ishmael became the father of Islam. Even though Isaac tried to pass off his wife as his sister because he was afraid, just like his dad did years before him, Isaac was the one that God chose. Well, from Isaac came Jacob and Esau. Remember, they were, they were twins. And God chose Jacob. Esau became the father of a pagan nation that was at always with a turmoil with Israel. Jacob tricked his brother tricked his blind father, stole a fortune from his uncle, but he was God's chosen. Look with me at verse 10 of Romans 9, 10 and following. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of, of him who calls, she was told the older, Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. For it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why did he hate Esau and love the tricksy little guy? Look with me at 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why did they believe? Not from their will or their effort not from anything that they did, but because of God who had mercy. There are no buts here. This is the plain truth. God has mercy on whom he will. He has compassion on whom he will. If you go further, it talks about Moses and Pharaoh, verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. Does that mean Pharaoh became a great person in the Lord? No, he was made, made a mockery of. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What about Moses? What did he do? Well, he was put in a basket by the river. He was raised in the very best possible of places. He was given these inordinate blessings throughout his life. He was preserved against all odds. God comes to him in this extraordinary way. He's, he comes to him and he speaks to him audibly through a bush that's on fire but not burning. And God asks him to do something and he says, 
I don't think I can do that. Yet God chose Moses, and he hardened Pharaoh. So what do we do with this truth? Well, first, as believers, we are eternally grateful for this truth. We didn't deserve it. We do nothing to earn it. But we have it anyway. In that case, as believers, what can we only ever do for what we have? We can only ever be thankful. Anything else is just rank rebellion. To suggest that we are ever owed anything is to question the grace and mercy of a God who didn't have to show us either one of those things. Secondly, what do we do with what we have? We have work to do. Christ still hasn't returned, meaning there is still work to do. And the work of the church is to preach the gospel gospel to all who will hear. Absolutely. And some of those who hear have been appointed beforehand to eternal life. If these things are true, and they are, we've read them, then what should we be doing? Preaching the good news to anyone and to everyone who will hear one common objection I hear to this doctrine is, well, if God knows who's going to be a saved and he's already appointed it ahead of time, then why do we need to preach? The Apostle Paul says it very clearly in Romans 10. How will they hear without a preacher? God has chosen to use this plain, foolish things of the world to shame the wise and to bring about his plan of redemption. The gospel is his message. The church is his mouthpiece. These are the things that he has chosen. Why preach preach the gospel? Because he has called us to do so. We have been called servants of God to show the light of the word to the world, to the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And what about this bit about Paul and Barnabas shaking the dust off their feet before they leave? Verse 51, but they shook the dust off their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. Who did they do this to? The Jews. I mean, we may want to say, okay then, when we preach the gospel, if they don't accept it, we should just be done with them altogether. I don't think that's what's being taught here. Maybe, but understand that those whose dust was being shaken off were Jews, the people that Paul and Barnabas came from, the ones who they thought were just, they were saved because they're just God's people. As the gospel goes forward, there are going to be many who will stand in opposition of it. And sadly, sadly, sometimes that opposition will come from within the church. Many will want to hear meat and potatoes instead of the gospel. Or they'll want to hear something new, which is much worse. First, let's make sure that we aren't this type of resistance. That we support the gospel work, not only here at Redeemer, we aren't the only one doing gospel work, obviously. Any church that preaches the truth should have our absolute support. When we stand in opposition of that church, we stand in opposition of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not a place to be. Second... There may be times when we have to separate from some when their gospel is no longer the true gospel. 
and we have to leave that up to the Lord. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, God has called us to be His people. And so let us rejoice in that, absolutely, but remember what He did for us. He called us not because of what we did or who we are, because He is merciful. And so now that we have this great blessing, let us now take that message to those who have been appointed to believe. And we do that by preaching to anyone and everyone who will listen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come before you, we recognize the difficulty of this teaching. We recognize that your sovereignty ultimately is past our finding out. And so we trust what we have read We trust what we have understood. Lord, help us to understand more and more. And help us to unceasingly and unflinchingly preach your gospel so that the nations may know, so that salvation may be brought to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.